Welcome to Out of the Blank. To another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast, Darren. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hi, Robbie. Good to be with you. Uh, my name is Darren Dochuk. I am Andrew V. Takis, College Professor of History at University of Notre Dame, uh, where I've taught for eight years. Uh, and I teach in 20th century U.S. history with a focus on religion and politics. Uh, and most recently have been working on, in terms of scholarship, but also teaching uh, connections of uh, religion, politics, and energy and environment in modern America. There's two things you're never supposed to talk about at the dinner table, and that's religion and politics, and you focus on both of those. So I'm just curious how you even got started in really talking or looking into the religious and political aspect of things. Yeah, well, as as with most things that I, I tend to work on, there there's a combination of uh, professional and personal. Uh, the personal goes way back to growing up in Western Canada, and uh, I'll try not to be too uh, biographical here, autobiographical, but uh, growing up in Alberta, Canada, which does have something to do with my interest in oil, which we'll uh, get to eventually. Uh, but growing up in the 80s, you know, there was uh, always this kind of fascination with what's going on south of the border in the United States uh, in terms of politics. I mean, that was the era of Reagan. And uh, so kind of coming of age in the 80s, there was just a lot going on uh, that I wanted to make sense of. Uh, there was also uh, growing up uh, in a community where there was a lot of kind of evangelical religion. There was uh, a natural interest in, uh, in, in measuring the impact of that movement, not just in Canada, but as it was related to the politics of America at that time. So that, that's kind of the personal side. And as I worked into my undergraduate studies uh, here in Canada, uh, decided to write more about that, uh, and then eventually made my way down to a, a PhD program in the United States where uh, I could kind of apply those interests and, and really uh, be, become a professional historian of the intersection of religion and politics. So the personal does matter here. Uh, the professional side is uh, when I was doing doctoral work uh, at Notre Dame uh, back, boy, 2015, 20 years ago, I guess, uh, there was just a lot of room to, to explore the intersections of religion and politics from a historical perspective. Uh, and uh, especially with the rise of Reagan conservatism, there was a, a rise within the scholarship that I was immersed in of trying to understand how did conservatism uh, come to be kind of so powerful uh, in the 80s going forward. And so uh, from a professional aspect, I decided that that would be a topic worth pursuing for a dissertation. And uh, I wrote my first book on Southern California uh, and the rise of evangelical conservatism and, and ultimately the rise of Reagan conservatism. So, uh, and and it, it proved to be, I think, a good choice. This was uh, a way to immerse myself in conversations, not just about religious history, my kind of uh, primary interest, but also in political history and to, to dialogue with political historians, uh, which is 
uh, something that required a little more heavy lifting on my part. So uh, that was those were decisions made, and and here I am, years later, uh, you know, continuing to work uh, in those fields and at the intersection of of both categories. Now, did the intersection start during the you mentioned the Reagan era? And it's like, obviously, each president kind of has their own era. But there's uh, usually it's like a timeline, there's the 60s and the 70s. But it seems like the Reagan era, or whenever he was president, whatever was going on, I mean, is that when the intersection really takes off? Is that like a peak point? Or did it go back even farther than that? Like, I've talked to people who studied like Norse mythology, and a bunch of things about the Vikings and other things. And it seems like even back then in ancient history, people are doing things, but it's the motivation of either their religious beliefs, or it, I mean, it goes into a bunch of different aspects like that. But then we see this shift now where it seems like everything's motivated by political things. We still have this weird thing in our society where we look for like a Christian family man as being president, which is, I don't know, that's just nuts to me. I'm not religious, but it, I, I'm, I'm curious, when did it start? Where do you get to see the peak tracking points of when it really starts to become, I guess, a little bit more intertwined? And I, I in my opinion, I think it, you can look at a lot of it and see that it relates to business, um, either the way motivations of companies go, depending on what their values are, beliefs. And we all know people have different moral beliefs, but I mean, to me, that's like the basic instinct of why someone decides or feels a certain way towards something is a lot of those morals and those things that are instilled of you, whether they're religious values or Western values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's 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 great, uh, great insight, great questions, uh, and for sure, uh, this is uh, the intersection of re religion and politics. Of course, runs deep, uh, especially in you know, again, speaking as someone who grew up in Canada. Uh, not to to keep going back to that, but. There was always a sense of viewing American society as a bit of an outsider with the curiosity of just how how is this? How have religion and politics played such a key role together, entwined in American history, especially? Uh, so my point about Reagan was was simply that was my entry point. That was, you know, when I was a doctoral student, uh, it was just then that the study of, of the rise of modern conservatism in American politics uh, really mattered. It was kind of a focal point that it hadn't been before. And with that kind of an interest in evangelicalism. So my entry came in trying to figure out that uh, the particularities of Reagan conservatism and its evolution from the late 30s, really, to, of course, the 1980s. But, uh, you know, I write about and as I, I teach as well, the, the, the history of religion and politics, faith and, the, and, and, and politics kind of entwined, runs deep in American history right to, you know, the early days. We could look to the Puritans, if you wish, uh, the, the sense of the nation itself as being exceptional, uh, exceptional in religious terms, exceptional in, in political terms. Uh, we could track that through the 19th century and uh, be it the Civil War, battles over uh, scriptural, you know, uh, uh, categorization of, of slavery or, or some of the key issues, the flashpoints of the 19th century, uh, often taking on uh, a particular religious intensity. Uh, or through the 20th century, there's not just, you know, the right, it's also about the left, it's about uh, a certain uh, liberal Kind of political vision for the nation that has many tie-ins with liberal ecumen, uh, ecumenical Protestantism, right? Uh, the New Deal itself can be seen in some ways as a project speaking to particular re religious values, uh, kind of this 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 
Christian internationalism uh, in many ways inspires uh, the, the New Deal of Roosevelt. So there's many more ways, as you say, to look at this, especially within the American environment. Uh, I would just add that I do think in the post-World War II period, certainly the post-60s period, the connections between religion and politics becomes more intently and intensely partisan. Uh, and so call them the culture wars or what have you, uh, religion, I do think, plays a much more uh, foregrounded and, and important role in the way American politics has gone in the last 30, 40 years. So in some ways, there's there's also a legitimacy in, in uh, focusing on the intersection of religion and politics with, with particular interest in recent American history. When it comes to that rise in conservatism during the Reagan era or just anything that really you get to see this kind of intersection really take off, is that because of communism? Like I had to learn a lot about communism and that kind of fear of it. And the interesting thing was when they were at a guest on um, Greg Polgrain, who wrote a book about Alan Dulles and JFK in Laos. And they were talking about like Indonesia and a bunch of different things and Sukarno and all these names start popping up. And he goes, the weird thing is someone asked me is like, when they started to realize that there was another form of communism, like communism was just this broad brush. And it was like, don't be a com and it was brainwashed into us to think like communism was this horrible thing is going to eat your babies and all this type of stuff. And then the idea like, wait, these people are communists too, but they're religious. And it was like, yeah, they're communists too. You can also have, and they kind of changed a little bit, kind of morphed the definition a little bit. And I think that was like a lot of fear and kind of the rise of conservatism, I would think would be because of communism. I mean, there was this red scare type fear that was, you know, 10 times magnifold over here, um, just in an aspect of like, that's the best way to kind of keep America with the same traditional values that it had had for so long. I mean, Kennedy was a person that was saying a bunch of things, trying to change a lot of that as well, too. But it is that kind of like you start seeing where things maintain the same, but also Vietnam War, and you see a bunch of kind of changes in our culture. And then there's like the rise of like all the counterculture movements, like the activists and underground press and everything of that sort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, no doubt about it. I mean, uh, if we want to look at the 1940s as a as a pivot point uh, in American political life, that, of course, makes perfect sense. Uh, uh, you know, World War II ends the Depression. Uh, it also, in some ways, fortifies uh, the New Deal state. Uh, but that, in turn, also raises the specter of, of, of kind of socialism and communism, both domestically and in terms of foreign policy, as you're outlining. So, yes, the Cold War period uh, and, and the overriding fear of communism will be one of the absolute most critical, uh, you know, kind of uh, uh, in terms of fueling the rise of, of conservatism, rise of evangelical conservatism, certainly uh, absolutely key. Uh, the great other, the, the the feared other, is is going to do wonders uh, for generating grassroots activism, but also, uh, you know, kind of inspire the formation of a of a kind of pro corporate capitalist uh, Christian American vision, uh, and that is ultimately going to be embraced by uh, a rising Republican right uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. So yes, and that's that's the story I tell. In many ways, in my first book, which I mentioned earlier, focus on Southern California, uh, a lot of other things are happening at this point. One key uh, factor is uh, migration, right? Uh, we've got, first of all, the rise of kind of the Sunbelt states. Uh, these are the states that were the poorest uh, in the 1930s, but by the 1950s are benefiting from 
uh, defense spending are benefiting from uh, uh, new corporate ventures, uh, extraction, uh, be it oil or what have you. Uh, this is where from South Carolina to Southern California, we, we see the greatest kind of gro growth in American society, American political economy. Uh, that is also the most kind of conservative evangelical region, right? And so they too uh, are empowered uh, at this moment. And uh, when they move to, you know, hundreds of thousands moved to Southern California at this time to work in defense industries, for instance, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, they're bringing their conservative values with them. Uh, and in California, they see the threat, not just of a communism abroad in Asia or in uh, the Soviet Union, uh, but they also see the threat of kind of communist socialist trends at home in California, which to them is considered very extremely liberal. So all of that helps them kind of coalesce uh, and build a movement uh, that is driven very much, as you say, by an anti-communist uh, uh, kind of platform. When did the hunt for oil kind of really take off? Like we talked about, you mentioned the Sun Belt. I'm not too familiar what the Sun Belt is. Um, could, I mean, could you explain a little bit about what the Sun Belt is? And then it, what, was there a, like we, you mentioned migration. Now, when did like, I guess more people become like moving to South, I guess, uh, California, would that also be the rise that they struck oil somewhere as well, too? They are related, and we can certainly unpack that. Uh, in, in first of all, in general terms, yes, the Sun Belt, uh, kind of a vague notion, but it's it's one that was uh, used by Republican strategists. For instance, uh, Kevin Phillips being most uh, important, most famous uh, uh, Republican strategist in the late '60s, who who saw the rising South. Uh, and again, if you want to look at the South, not just as the deep South, but running across the Southern Rim through Texas, uh, all the way to California, Southern California, as really fertile ground for the Republican Party. Uh, and why was that? It's because this was a region, as I said, was coming alive in the post-World War II period uh, because of its pro-business uh, pro uh, policies, generally more anti-labor, for instance. Uh, so it was, you know, promoting tax breaks for companies, encouraging business to move to this region. Uh, it was also a region that benefited, as I said, from defense spending. Uh, and it was also a region coming alive because of large corporate sectors. Uh, oil was one of those. Now, the story of migration of oil to this region goes back earlier, and we can return to that. Uh, so the Sun Belt really is uh, a political economic reality uh, that by the 1970s is becoming uh, really crucial to partisan politics and to especially the rise of the Republican Party. And we see that still today, right? This is a region that is still very heavily red. Uh, so that that's what I mean by the term sunbelt. Uh, oil, as I said, is one of the most crucial uh, industries. It's one of the economic kind of lifebloods of this region. Uh, its discovery goes back to the turn of the 20th century, so there's a longer history to it, but suffice to say that from the 1960s to our present day, oil, uh, whether it be based in Texas, Oklahoma, what have you, uh, is an industry that very much drives not just the political economy, but the politics of this region, uh, and there's different ways, again, to flesh that out, but uh, 
Well, there's uh, a desperate. term out there called big Texas oil men. But what's weird to me is like you get companies like Exxon Mobil and all these, but like I've went and I've talked to environmentalists and a bunch of people that study different renewable energies and things. But we're going to like government or energy.gov and you scroll to the bottom and you see the name Exxon where you're like, why are they part of this environmental thing where they're somehow like it, it, I don't know if that's a cover. I don't know if that's like a disguise, like, hey, we're actually funding this, but really they're the ones that are doing some of the most damage as well, too. I mean, it's great if you act like, yeah, we're doing this still, but don't look at that. Look at all the money we're funding to the climate change movement and everything. That's it's like a weird double standard that I'm not understanding. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that's uh, that's complicated, too. Uh, I, I think what you're seeing is an effort by the majors kind of or super major oil companies that uh, through history have, of course, promoted this industry and, and promoted its uh, kind of its Americanization and also its globalization. Uh, again, a longer history that we'll, we can talk more about. Uh, today, I think they see the benefits, uh, the economic benefits of, of trying to diversify and trying to, to encourage a more uh, kind of green energy agenda alongside uh, their continued uh, investment in, in, in carbon, uh, in, in, in oil, uh, oil and gas. Uh, so I think they're trying to have it both ways. Uh, a more generous side of this would say that they see a future in which sustainable uh, energy, alternative energy sources are going to become increasingly more important, and they want a, a piece of that, and they want to encourage it. Uh, anecdotally, you know, I've, I've taught uh, at Notre Dame, an energy history course uh, for a number of years that is very popular among uh, students in engineering uh, who are getting sustainable, uh, uh, sustainable sustainability studies minors. Uh, and they are often moving into these large oil companies, British Petroleum, uh, Exxon, what have you. Uh, and within those corporate structures are actually becoming uh, kind of this young vanguard of promoting uh, green energy within these large oil companies, and 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 they're being supported by the top-down uh, corporate structure. So there is a way in which it does make sense. Uh, there are contradictions, of course, always in play here. Uh, but I think both from an economic incentive uh, and also a sense among many within these large corporate bodies of moral responsibility, uh, we're seeing these companies uh, invest and, and commit themselves to to a different future. Does that change the company's kind of conservative, I guess, conservative or capitalist ideas that they might have had from the start? I mean, you have a bunch of young students, and I think my generation is probably more conscious about the environment, but also probably have a little bit more different ideas of capitalism. I mean, capitalism worked for the most sense. I mean, after I think during the Great Depression, it was kind of that after part of where we're going to go. Are we going to keep with this capitalist model or if we're going to take a more social model? And then they took the capitalist model and it to me, that was just a short kind of drink. It wasn't something that they, I think that was going to work permanently. I mean, it's still, you know, influenced so much of our culture today, but that's the same thing with oil as well, too. I mean, if you look at the time period of when people were actually striking oil, like back however long ago, there was no concern if we're ever going to run out. It was just this idea, we got to find more of it. We got to keep going and looking and doing whatever. And it became a giant influence into our culture. Now, at this point, with the amount of renewable energy talks I've had, it's about trying to weem off of what we've 
built basically our whole entire society on. And there's some people that necessarily don't want to give up. They, or at least in their lifetime, don't want to give that up who own these major companies. But at the same time, they, what you mentioned, they want to also have a stock in something that is going to be the next. So they're not completely out if it does transfer over. Right. Yeah. No, well, well put. Uh, yes, there's, there's been this uh, incessant, this, this continued drive from the very beginning for, for more and for new oil sources. Uh, I, I would say it's also been driven by fear of, of peak oil uh, in, in kind of multiple cycles through American history. Uh, but yes, uh, good point. I think, you know, and this is a, a something uh, I, I make, I focus on very much in the book is to think of oil not as uh, a monolithic thing uh, in terms of a corporate entity. It's not just big oil. We we talk about big oil and 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 rightfully so in some ways. This is a a sector, an economic sector that does often operate uh, with a united vision, a united voice in terms of protecting its interests, right? Uh, but within, it's also a very divided industry, and through time. Uh, one of these divisions has been be between kind of major oil, these large multinational uh, uh, operations represented by Exxon, represented by kind of the standard oil of yesteryear and its legacies. Uh, and on one side, and those representing kind of smaller independent oil firms uh, run by families or run by just kind of at, the, at a smaller scale. Uh, and that those divisions matter too, I think, even in our present day. I think talking about Exxon or British Petroleum or some of these super major companies, they have a luxury of scale, right? They can at once promote uh, continued exploration and production in oil at the same time that they have other wings with, within their corporate structures to support sustain, sustainable uh, energy sources and the exploration for alternatives. Uh, they're massive enough to be able to take those chances, take those risks, to test the waters for something new without losing uh, their primary economic base or interests, right? Uh, whereas throughout the Southwest, and we can go back to the late 19th, early 20th century uh, for why this is, uh, there's also been a very uh, kind of certainly powerful, animated kind of independent oil sector. Uh, but these, these oil companies, those who are working primarily on domestic shores are most focused on opening up new production here in North America or along the Gulf. Uh, they tend to be more fiercely protective of oil interests. They have to be, right? They're a little bit more desperate. They don't have the benefit of scale. Uh, and so they they tend to be the most vociferous in their political lobbying uh, in Washington, for instance, for protecting their rights to drill, their rights to explore uh, on domestic shores. And so I think th those are some important differences also to understand uh, if we want to measure uh, the role of oil in current politics uh, and in current uh, kind of political economic uh, ambitions for the nation. Well, it's, it's weird to me is that when you start seeing some of these government officials who are hanging out with some of the biggest people in a lot of these oil companies and whether you say like, I mean, that that's a dangerous relationship or a dangerous friendship. I mean, somebody's getting something out of whatever is going to happen, whether it's less restrictions or I guess maybe not a close as eye as to some of the environmental issues that they may be doing. But 
that's what like when did that start when did this relationship between i guess our politics get intertwined with some of i mean individual as like individual actors not necessarily the global scale of politics but just this relationship with our government compared to the relationship with you know oil companies private owners whether they're big corporations that are these people that are in charge of these companies but you get into this aspect of like is that because of you know, this control aspect of things. I'm not saying like a deep state or anything. I'm just mentioning the fact that this capitalistic relationship that has now grown between both of them, and it seems like the 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 thread that connects them is the capitalist system. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, throughout its history in the United States, running back to the 1850s, 1860s, when it was first uh, kind of discovered, uh, but, but seen as uh, commercially viable, uh, you know, oil has always represented itself. Those in oil have always represented this sector as the quintessential American capitalist endeavor, right? It, it, embrace, it embraces, it encompasses all that is kind of pure, as they see it, of the capitalist venture. It's, it requires risk-taking, it requires initiative, it requires entrepreneurialism, it requires uh, kind of experimentation, uh ambition melded with mechanical know-how so uh and and it is always looking for new frontiers right this is the ultimate capitalist venture uh incidentally that's why you know oil the the industry itself has always sold itself as that go back to the 1920s right uh some of the uh the moments when capitalism was flourishing as quintessentially american in the 1920s it was the oil industry that was always kind of pushing that narrative uh, or in the 1930s, when capitalism was in trouble, uh, oil was always playing a, a defensive role in, in shoring up kind of uh, capitalist value. So, so that's, I, I think, key to, to, to what you're saying. Uh, again, with differences between different sectors within the oil industry mattering as much uh, as, as well. Uh, your question about the state, uh, and, and again, it, it runs deep in the history of oil in American life, right? Uh, in the kind of first generation of uh, oil production in the United States based largely in Pennsylvania from the 1870s through the 1890s, uh, it was the Rockefellers, it was Standard Oil, it was this monolithic uh, monopoly that was Standard Oil, which controlled upwards of 90% of all oil refining uh, at this period that, of course, it had to have state support. And it was quite natural for those working in this industry to also be very much uh, invested in politics, perhaps even running as uh, officers uh, at the state and federal levels, or in reverse to have very prominent politicians be heavily invested financially in the industry itself. This was just how big this industry was. It's also indicative of what it meant uh, to the rise of the modern American nation state itself in the post-Civil War period. Uh, as I write in the book, I mean, the fact that oil comes into the imagination of American nationhood at the Civil War period and in the wake of that, uh, I think is more than just symbolic, right? Oil is really the lifeblood of a new nation itself as it envisions its uh, growth, uh, as it envisions its uh, kind of imperial ambitions too on a global scale. So the state uh, and the industry itself are very much wedded together from the very beginning. So it's no surprise as you move into the 20th century that uh, this relationship is going to continue to strengthen. And then you look at particular regions like 
uh, the oil patches of America. I used the earlier term sunbelt. We could use the term oil patch, of course, to describe uh, the ways in which oil absolutely, as you said earlier, dictates uh, kind of the, 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 the life of a community in places like Texas, Oklahoma. There, especially through the 20th century, um, at an individual level, you're going to see many key players moving seamlessly across industry, corporate lines into the politics uh, in reverse as well, bringing their politics, bringing their statesmanship to bear on the fortunes of the oil business uh, in, in this region. And, and that continues to play today. Well, even asking from, I guess, your outsider perspective, I mean, did you notice that those kind of ideas start to influence the rest of the world? Like, it's not necessarily like influencing America anymore. It's now influencing other cultures as well to kind of adapt this model that we've learned to, or certain individuals have learned to profit off of so much. This idea for oil, this idea for a capitalist system. I don't think capitalism really has a chance in some other countries that they try and spread it to. But it's this influencing that starts to happen. Like this model worked for us. And I guess America, they usually say, is kind of like the role model, even though we have so many problems. But that's kind of where it was said, at least when I was a kid, I was always looking through history. And it was kind of that aspect of things of like this role model attitude. You know, America set an example. And we're all obviously viewed at more in everyone's politics. Everyone's looking at us like a microscope and either laughing like it's TMZ. But it's that idea that we do or we are spreading that model to other countries. And I don't know if that's just because of our exploration into those other countries. I had to look at the invasion of Latin America to understand why the hell we were even down there. But you start to kind of realize that it's like this influence of trying to shift another person's culture to match our own, either if that's in success for us or if that's in benefit for the relationships of whatever the capitalist system is. But I mean, that's not a dumb question. That's an, an observation I started kind of noticing was this influence of other cultures, um, or at least us trying to change them for this business model. Yeah, for sure. No, again, that runs deep in American history. You know, the, what was the mantra or the, the, the general path uh, taken was usually, you know, if we want to bring religion politics together here, uh, missionaries were often uh, first on the ground, be it in Asia or Latin America. Uh, and, and soon after American business interests would follow uh, looking for, in the case of oil, for new extraction zones, right? Always hunting for new extraction uh, points of extraction and, and perhaps hopefully extractive wealth. Uh, and of course, once you get those players involved, the state also has to play a role, be it militarily or what have you, uh, to protect uh, the security and, and the interests of, of those different sectors, uh, religion and business. So Yes, and we can look at uh, uh, across you know the globe by 1890s. This is this is certainly functioning, playing out uh, in in some pretty dramatic roles. You pointed to Latin America, of course, being a, an obvious choice. So uh, yes, and you know when we look at oil, especially, and I, I do spend quite a bit of time uh, in the book uh, charting the exploration uh, undertaken by geologists of American oil companies who, who are in their own right missionaries, right? They, they're going into the jungles of the Amazon. They're moving into uh, the near and Middle East, uh, into the deserts uh, around the Persian Gulf, looking for oil. Uh, many of them devout Christians. Uh, they're, in the case of the Middle East, uh, very uh, obsessed with kind of the holy lands of this place. And so their fascination extends beyond just looking for crude. 
nevertheless, they're bringing that knowledge, that fascination to bear on their, their hunt for crude uh, and eventually finding it in these places, uh, followed by uh, the rise of larger corporations, uh, Aramco and Saudi Arabia, of course, being the most uh, dramatic uh, expression of this. And then going forward, as you suggest, uh, trying to transport, trying to export this this confidence in the abilities of oil to uplift a society, to, to create strong capitalist structures that can be sustained, uh, also very much driving uh, kind of American corporate initiative abroad. Uh, and by the 1970s, that's going to raise some challenges, certainly in the, in the sector of oil. Uh, but nevertheless, there is this 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 weddedness of this this wedding of uh, kind of American exceptionalism and its mission to the world with the possibilities of capitalism and in the sense of oil, the magical possibilities of this natural resource bringing life uh, and, and and helping modernize an entire globe. So, uh, you know, perhaps that that uh, speaks a bit to your your question there. This is going to be a really dumb observation. You can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but you mentioned like, I mean, our obsession with, I guess, the Holy Land or, you know, Saudi Arabia for having a lot of oil. I mean, if you mentioned the word pure oil is seen as pure. I mean, that's the symbolism for the Holy Spirit, if I'm not mistaken, is that it's oil, right? I mean, I'm not wrong in saying that. Yeah, yeah. So you have to think the influence of going for the Holy Land there, whoever, whenever that started this idea out there, if someone had the notion of maybe that's a hint, I mean, that's kind of instilled into us that, you know, the Holy Spirit is this oil. So Holy Land, there must be oil there. It's a dumb connect the dots thing. But I mean, I think that I don't know, that might be a bad observation. Not at all. No, my goodness. No, that's exactly uh, I, I certainly, uh, you know, kind of flesh out tease out those connections uh in in my book uh anointed with oil is the title of the book right uh anointing is a biblical uh process uh it's a biblical metaphor uh easily applied to the ways in which oil has meant so much to the rise of the american of, of, of the united states as a nation since the 1850s 1860s its control of this resource for so much of this period has in in no small ways given it a sense of blessedness, right? This is a, a, a special blessing from God. Now, those within the oil industry itself, it, particularly uh, some of the more kind of evangelical independent oil men that I, I chart uh, in the book really took seriously uh, both their biblical beliefs and also their beliefs in the magical supernatural possibilities of oil. This was a resource, unlike coal and others, that was so spectacular in its arrival. It almost, it was dizzying, right? It was unpredictable. It was, uh, there was a way in which it defied odds. Uh, and that just lent itself a certain kind of supernatural feel to it. Uh, combine that with a belief in Bible teachings, especially end times teachings, uh, which raised the importance of the Middle East. Uh, it's no wonder that these kind of come together in a way that you kind of hint at uh, to, to make the Middle East such a such a, a vital outsized kind of uh, region uh, for oil exploration. And we can get into the nitty gritty, but um, as I said in the book, uh, this divide between major oil and independent oil will also have uh, play a role in the geopolitics of, of the Middle East. 
major oil companies, uh, the, the standard offshoots, uh, uh, Gulf included, uh, British Petroleum, are all going to create these massive uh, structures of oil production and refining and transportation in the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, for instance, with, with Aramco. By, by kind of marrying themselves to the fortunes of oil production in Arab states, they are going to, uh, by extent, uh, uh, not be allowed to, to work in Israel. Uh, Israel is going to be every bit as anxious to find oil in its borders in the post-1948 period. Uh, where they're going to turn for help is to the independents, those who have some wherewithal to work on a global scale but cannot compete with these Aramcos of the world. Uh, many of these independents are, are Texas, Oklahoma evangelicals who see their work in the Holy Land as blessed, right? Not just for helping Israel find this resource, make it profitable, but also to help Israel sustain itself in anticipation of this glorious end that they see uh, kind of uh, that, that they read about in in uh, in scriptures pertaining especially to the last days. So uh, just again, uh, building on what you said, I think it's a, it's a great insight and, and, that, and that's certainly something that I think makes oil so important to American life, not just from a political or economic standpoint, but in terms of the psyche, in terms of the imagination, the ways in which this nation and, and its its citizens have imagined its place in, in the world, including in the Middle East. I'm not religious, but trying to look from the religious viewpoint, what, what back in the day to what you just mentioned about rising up like the city of Israel by using smaller independent business people who might be these evangelical types. I have to think that in the beginning of going to looking at oil as pure or looking at like the, you know, this idea, how it gets linked in with religion. When you struck oil, you had to see it as a sign that God was giving you kind of a blessing in a sense. I mean, that's not crazy. We all see things today and, you know, something good happens. You go, oh, someone up there must be looking out for me. I mean, that's a common example. But back then the idea had to be like the way that some people are viewing it is this is my holy land. Like you don't, don't strike anything here. Don't do any of that type of stuff to them. It's like, it's literally a message from God to tell you, find this goal that can lift your city up and lift your people up. So it's just different perspectives of viewing it based on what, I guess, the, the longer exposure to whatever that oil is. I mean, we see it over here. I mean, I, I, I was going to ask this question earlier, but when the you see the kind of the relationship with oil start to begin and these ties start to happen, was that like that with coal? Were they as kind of like the relationship with people that own coal mines and governments start to kind of create that little bit of relationship and it kind of just grew faster and a little bit deeper when oil became a different resource and they learned how to work with that better mm -hmm. yeah uh great points there um you know and i often had that question asked me well what's the difference between oil and and coal or or some of these other uh kind of uh, extracted resources and on one level, one general level, there isn't a difference. Uh, I would say that uh, coal was sacralized as well in, in many ways, right? It was seen as God-given. Uh, you know, there, there have been authors, historians who've written about Britain, for instance, and, and its expansion uh, globally as an empire in the 19th century, driven very much by the need for coal. Uh, also, 
driven by its possession of coal. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's no wonder that coal was in many ways sacralized as well as kind of the manifest destiny of Britain. This was a, a, a supernatural resource, not just a material, but a supernatural resource that uh, dictated the future of, of kind of a God-fearing Christian British empire. So, yeah, you could say that. And, and some of that was going on in the United States as well. Coal, certainly in coal regions, uh, takes on its own kind of religious connotations. And, and again, you can be cynical about that. Uh, perhaps it's just cover, right? Uh, or it's compensation for, for uh, the pain and agony of working in a region of coal where there's so much violence and death. Uh, religion serves as kind of that, uh, that way to assuage or to, to help. Uh, but I, I think for, for many people in the industry at the corporate level, but also those local citizens who are working in those industries, uh, I think the religious aspects mean more to them, right? Uh, and so coal, yes, does take on that meaning. Now, that's at the higher altitude. At the lower altitude, I would say, I think oil still stands out as unique for the particular kind of religious narratives, the, the, the religiosity that it encourages. Uh, you know, I often say oil is in many ways Pentecostal, right? Uh, compared to, let's say, farming, which is more Methodist. Uh, oil uh, is, compared to coal, spectacular in its arrival, as I said. Uh, it comes and it goes rapidly. And it comes, in, especially in the earlier period, right? It would arrive and then it would disappear. There was a science of, of uh, petroleum geology was going to be slow to catch up to some of this. So for the first two, three generations of oil exploration in this country, it was kind of a guessing game. And for many people, this meant this was a game in which you were going to win if God showed favor to you, if you prayed over it. Uh, and, and so unlike coal, which takes time to develop, a field is going to be around for a while. Uh, coal mining in a region is going to take place for quite a while before it slowly disappears. Oil came and go in, in spectacular fashion. Uh, it also had a certain charismatic quality to it. Uh, you know, I think a key feature of oil in the United States was its founding kind of corporate code uh, enforced by the state, which was the rule of capture, which allowed the uh, exploration of oil in this country to be uh, kind of a, a, an every man's game. Anyone who dared to enter the business could do so. Take high risks. You could be a wildcatter and go out and discover it. Uh, unlike coal, which required heavier uh, overhead uh, and, and, and in some ways a, a deeper relationship with the state, oil was independent. It was a libertarian enterprise. Uh, and so uh, you could be very poor and still kind of apply your trade and your knowledge of the land and, and go hunt for oil. And this is going to be especially crucial uh, in 1900 going forward when oil is discovered in the southwest in Texas uh, and Oklahoma. These are poor regions of the country. The 1930s, and I talk about this at length in the book, one of my most uh, kind of fascinating, uh, I think, sections of the book to, to, to research and write has to do with the East Texas oil fields of 1930s, right? This is like the poorest region of a country uh, that is beset by poverty during the Depression, yet it's at that very moment in that place where oil is discovered. And throughout the entire 1930s, East Texas will explode as the largest oil field in the world. Is it any wonder that 
uh, oil is going to be seen as a divine blessing, right? This is these are religious folk who who have been suffering mightily, and all of a sudden this resource uh, you know arrives, and it's going to create wealth. It's going to create, of course, poverty and problems as well. Uh, but it's easily grafted onto this narrative of divine blessing, uh, and by extension, by kind of this notion of of a manifest destiny. So, uh, well, all that's to say, about say, look how many people were praying during the Great Depression for this pain and suffering to end. You know, looking for any sliver of hope, and the next thing you know, oil starts striking up, and you're looking at it like, oh, I had to suffer for a little bit to get to the Holy Land or to get to this paradise of, and then now they're excelling their lives and not even thinking about any ram of. I mean, I think it's with now in today's time where there's a lot more people that are largely probably unreligious. I think 46 percent of the population last time I checked, like three or four years ago, I just don't know what to believe in or choose to worship at home. And I think like you see that you start to see more of an environmental conscious now, like you're paying people are paying attention to that and i mean you have to think with resources in general not just oil not just coal just with anything there's always been that kind of spiritual or christian influence and when i see a river i not religious but for god's sakes i mean it's a beautiful picture it looks like it had to be sculpted by somebody so it's like you start seeing those adaptations or those kind of influences and look at when most of the world or most of the states was christian and then you're finding different resources gold rush i mean you're looking at this as like God's sending literally this beauty. I mean, it just shows you what resources start to excel and become these. I mean, what is gold worth? I mean, that's the thing is like we have these uh, diamonds are basically worth nothing now, but it's just it looks pretty. And at a time, it meant so much because it was some of those values that were instilled to be like, God sent me this gem from the earth. And next thing you know, it's and it becomes the most popular thing, you know, that all of society starts to build around is those kind of values. Yeah, no, uh, again, well put. And, and comparison to the gold rushes, I think, uh, really appropriate in the case of oil, very similar in that regard, although uh, oil as a gold rush is going to sustain itself across time um, in American life in a way that gold, uh, let's say, of the 19th century gold rush period did not. Uh, and, and then just the scale of oil's wealth uh, is also unmatched. Uh, especially in light of what it means to American uh, life throughout the 20th century. So, uh, yes, uh, good points. And, and again, you know, when we stress the religious here, I'm not saying that everyone is seeing it necessarily in biblical terms when they when they're experiencing oil in the 30s or or uh, or working for its exploration abroad. Not everyone, of course, few are are so explicitly religious. Uh, but what I would say is that when you live on an oil patch, for instance, in Texas. Uh, even the cycles of life, uh, of, of economy, of labor, of worship and play uh, are, are dictated by the cycles of crude uh, in a way you might not even imagine. Uh, and, and so in that sense, there, there's a certain existential spiritual quality about life in proximity to oil. Uh, that is something we, we, we need to take seriously, certainly when we try to understand the importance of that business to American life, especially to those who are most invested in it. And that goes to questions of environmentalism and such too. I mean, you know, trying to extract ourselves from this extractive industry is not so easy when it's not just a question of labor uh, or jobs. It's not just a question of, of, you know, damage to the landscape. It's also about how uh, generations of Americans in those areas, in those oil patches have 
have dictated uh, the ebbs and flow of life uh, and defined them uh, in these existential and spiritual terms. I'll just add to that, you know, we, we look at the spiritual dimensions of oil and its discovery as, as you know, kind of kind of affirming uh, divine blessedness. But uh, by extension, oil through time, including in the 1930s, East Texas was also seen as a violent industry. Uh, it was one that came and, 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 and went suddenly. Uh, it would leave behind damage. It did great damage to bodies. It, it, it killed uh, fire, of course, uh, an affliction that was common. Uh, some of the most devastating, including one of the most devastating uh, industrial uh, uh, crises in American history took place in East Texas, 1937. Uh, I write about uh, uh, a new the New London School disaster, and perhaps uh, you're not aware of this, but there was an underground explosion due to gas lines in East Texas uh, that ran underneath uh, uh, one of the most uh, brand new, one of the most kind of posh uh, high schools in the United States built on oil money. And uh, the school exploded and over 300 kids died. Uh, so this is, again, while oil was welcomed as a sign of blessedness, uh, citizens in the oil patch also came to view it as temperamental. Uh, and how do you deal with that tragedy? How do you deal with losing uh, half or a third of your underage population uh, at once? You lean even more heavily on kind of your understanding of, of the Bible, of, of the divine. How do you find healing? You find it in the teachings of kind of a Pentecostal evangelicalism that says our bodies can be healed through our commitment to Christ. So in that way too, it's, it's not just the boom, but the bust of oil and its cycles that reinforce uh, a certain kind of, of religiosity that we see today still so prominent across the oil patches of America. Did you ever look into if there was anybody that was aware and thought of oil in an opposite way instead of a way that was prosperous, but a way that was kind of like the seven sins? Like you kind of have to you have to think of oil like what it does to you. I mean, if you look at the seven sins, it's basically essentially you can consider it a test of your faith, for instance. Are you going to accept these seven sins? I mean, look at the people that eventually become adapted to this growing, I guess, business that they have or their growing lifestyle. You got which uh, greed that's involved in that. You have so much that starts to leak in where it's like when I start looking at kind of like oil in a sense, like, oh, this is like the seven deadly sins, like the things you're supposed to stay away from because of what it does to a person. You end up losing those some of those core values that maybe a life or a generation before you would have held so true. And I think some people had to be deterred from even going after some of these fancy objects, and they considered it probably the opposite fact. They're not even angelical or looking at it. From a God aspect, you're looking at this is like the devil. This is this is temptation. Don't lead into temptation. I know plenty of people that won't risk anything because it's that idea of temptation, and they do have strong religious values in that sense. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. You know, and again, that's the uh, the uh, the other side of this story that is in many ways also animated by its own morality, by its own moral perspective, by its own judgment that for many through time in American life have been uh, dictated by their own religious principles. Uh, I write extensively about I, Ida Tarbell, uh, one of my more, more compelling figures, someone I really enjoyed uh, kind of spending time with in the archives. And uh, Ida Tarbell is, is, 
the journalist of the turn of the 20th century, the muckraker journalist who wrote an expose of Standard Oil uh, and basically took the company down, right? It's it's based in, in many ways on kind of the public perception that she generated in opposition to Standard Oil that uh, kind of helped move along uh, federal uh, kind of action against Standard Oil, uh, deeming it a, a, a monopoly and forcing it to disband uh, by the Supreme Court ruling of uh, 1911, I believe. So, and and in many ways, Tarbell saw oil as evil. Uh, it did damage to her family. Uh, it did damage to her her West Pennsylvania town, and she was coming at it from uh, uh, the perspective of a very devout Methodist Quaker as well. So in any case, yes, through time, oil has also been seen as one Venezuelan uh, oil minister said in the 1970s, famously or infamously, oil is the devil's excrement. Uh, and so there is a sense that oil has always represented, as you say, uh, in a way I hadn't thought of kind of the seven deadly sins kind of at their extreme oil has always been seen as more so than any other resource i would argue uh as a potential for uh exaggerated uh extreme kind of injustice uh and damage to the soul uh the soul of a community the soul of a nation uh if you want to look at 1950s America, there's plenty of offerings here from Hollywood, for instance. Giant was one of the most uh, popular movies of the time based on a popular book uh, starring James Dean, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, right? And, and it was very much in this genre. In the 1950s, there was this obsession with oil in West Texas that was being discovered at the time, uh, but also of, of the damage being done by oil's discovery. Uh, it was doing... Uh, great damage to Texas, right? It was getting rid of the old life of ranching and farming and replacing it with this uh, culture of excess. Uh, Hollywood picked up on that and, and played to those themes. So uh, yes, throughout time, uh, there's this other part of the story that matters. And if we're trying to understand again today, some of the debates uh, and, and tensions over pro versus anti oil, uh, many of those are, are kind of longstanding narratives based on highly moral, highly moralistic uh, uh, perspectives in relation to crude. Hollywood was the one that exposed all the damage. I would because I would have to think that a lot of these media wouldn't be reporting on some of the damage that ha like I've talked to people that have talked about sustainable mining, which is a very, very hard topic to do when you look at the explosions that go on with a lot of mining things but dealing in the topic of renewables it was a lot of journalists that were exposing the damage and that really didn't start until people started to realize like fracking when their water was being contaminated when it started hitting their face and then journalists had to look into it and then they started reporting it and then you see a lot of documentaries and i think the mainstream news and at least from what i've seen really never talked about it a whole lot until eventually it became such a big problem and now the kind of culture has shifted where now it's all about environmental issues before it was like we're not going to we're going to gloss over that and i don't know if that could have been some of those corporations funding some of the media i mean i wouldn't put it above them but there was not really a whole lot of reporting on it. and then i remember 2014 i think it was is when the fracking thing started happening and there's like that famous thing with obama or is like, can i get a glass of water and they gave him water and he wouldn't drink it because it wasn't and there's like that there's a, a recognition from the public and what sparked the public's interest well it started affecting their lives i can uh 
give a good example, which is when they wanted to build windmills in my, I live in a beach town. So they wanted to build windmills. Like, well, where are you going to do it? We want wind energy. Okay. Well, we're going to build them two miles off the shore. And everyone's like, ah, never mind. It's going to obstruct my view. You know, people are happy with something only if they don't have to see it or they don't have to come in contact with it. So that's why we go to other countries and things of that sort to do that as well, too. And I think it's that damage when people start realizing, like, hey, it's not just affecting you, but if you touch their kids, oh, their kids, that merely blind anger and everything like that. And that's, I mean, rightfully so, but that's what causes people to wake up. And then some of these industries don't know how to, you know, cover that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, great points. And, and, and I think, uh, well, I mean, addressing it in, 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 in one way, uh, the example I just gave of the movie Giant, uh, which came out in the late 50s, again, based on an early 50, 1950s book, uh, or Ida Tarbell, two examples that we, we just discussed briefly, you know, both, both critiqued the oil industry, not for its environmental damage necessarily, uh, but for what it did to the human condition. Uh, so in Tarbell's case, her father was in the oil industry and Rockefeller basically drove him to his death, right? He was bankrupted. And, and so she witnessed that. She wasn't anti-oil uh, for its possibilities from a capitalist perspective. She still was a capitalist. She just, she just saw damage done to capitalism when it was controlled by monopolies. So that's that. Uh, Giant. It was, again, a, a critique of what big oil did to Texas society, uh, what it uh, what it did to kind of promote, again, certain excess egregious kind of forms of, of behavior among the rich uh, and what it did to damage traditional Texas values. Uh, when we get to the 70s and forward, that's when we start getting uh, more of these connections between a critique of oil and, and environmentalism uh, as a movement. And so from that point forward, as you talk about fracking and so forth, uh, that is kind of the, the, the critique now that we, we see kind of stirred up by, by crude, by, by oil and our dependence on that. And again, very moralistic in its own ways. Uh, also, as you say, somewhat short-sighted in cases too, right? It, it, it's kind of the NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. I mean, uh, I'm going to fight oil if it's going to infringe on my own kind of personal well-being. Otherwise, I, I, I might just let it be. Uh, but in general terms, uh, the, the critique of oil now that is so uh, energized and animated is, is coming from, from an environmental movement that is, again, only post-1970s really in its, its effect. I, I I'm I'm like pro the environment movement and I'm also kind of like what are you going to replace it with like that's the hardest thing for me is like whenever that topic it's like we need to get rid of oil it's like well what's the suggested method because everyone who studies like wind power water all that they all say theirs is the best and then I go on to like energy.gov and it's like nuclear energy I'm like wait I thought that was going to make you grow a third eye like that's the whole thing is like the confusion with like the energy. And I think that's why there's like a large interest in my generation. There's people that are companies now, at least are more open to the idea of trying to find a more suitable, you know, funding some of that aspect of things. I don't think it's just a, you know, a self-profit aspect. I think it's because they know that this is going to how the culture is going to go. It's going to shift in this direction. We see that with reporting on media. Now, I think, you know, it's always the talk about climate. I usually see trending and I think, for a long time, we didn't have to really worry about it. But I think from scientists and everything paying attention and obviously activists and journalists of things of that sort kind of 
became more uh, a majority than a minority and it kind of influenced the cultural but that just shows you like our perspectives and our moral values impact so much of what we do in our every i guess everyday life of society i mean the influence of whatever and then we want to impede those values i guess from american values onto other people as well too i mean i had to understand islam and be like wait what and then once someone broke it down for me i was like wait okay so that's what okay that doesn't sound that bad but the way it gets labeled is the same way it got labeled with communism it doesn't matter what your religious values is it's just that trying to convert in this aspect which is just a weird weird history in general yeah 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 for sure uh yeah well again i think it's we are at a moment uh where climate crisis has created these these conversations and lent them a certain urgency uh, a certain uh, fierceness as well uh, as it plays out in, in media and in, 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 uh, communications, social media, and, and in politics. Uh, my, my hoped for contribution to this, as I've already alluded to, is, is that uh, there are no simple answers. And again, maybe this is why I'm a historian, not a pundit or a journalist. Uh, uh, I see things in grays. And uh, the complexities of this, uh, and in the case of of you know oil and our our commitment to it, it it, it is it runs deep, and and it runs deep in in the the history of this country uh, that has such resonance at the local level, especially. So, uh, for us as you know, kind of pro environmentalists, uh, those who are seeking to reverse uh, the climate crisis. Uh, to to imagine a different future is also going to require us to reimagine uh, our communities themselves, especially those communities that have been so fundamentally dependent on this one resource. Uh, you know, I, I'm part of, and again, having done work in religion and politics as a historian, learning the energy side of this equation uh, took some time. And uh, for the last number of years have immersed myself in in kind of this subfield of energy humanities uh which is uh really a, a kind of a global community of scholars uh who are working in anthropology cultural studies uh in history literature to approach energy not just as a political or economic reality but to say you know we need to understand the again the 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 ways in which energy regimes be it oil be it wind be it nuclear uh, shape the very ways of being and the ways of imagining our being uh, in those particular places and time. Uh, and that's important, I think, as we understand uh, how we go forward as a society, uh, as a global society, to to kind of uh, uh, imagine a different sustainable future. So that's that's a kind of a small point. You know, I, I've been writing more broadly now about energy, kind of doing a, a moral history of energy. And you look to the 1970s, this was a key pivot point. Uh, and even President Jimmy Carter, right? He, he uh, energy was one of his key platforms as, as a one-term president. And he spoke often about energy starting in 1977. Also, of course, his famous crisis of confidence speech or Malay speech in 79. Uh, but in all cases, he saw energy as, again, a moral question, all right? This wasn't just an economic one. And he would be critiqued for it in some ways, but in some ways, looking back on it, I think he had his finger on the pulse of, of what energy means to us as a society. It, 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 it raises these questions uh, that we need to grapple with uh, beyond uh, kind of the brass tacks of, of money uh, and power and interest. So 
Uh, and last last thing I'll just say, uh, you, you brought up Islam, you brought up, uh, you know, we talked a bit about Saudi Arabia. And, and I think what we also need to recognize is just how oil has kind of permeated uh, kind of the, the sacred imagination of these rising societies as well. These petrol, uh, petrol regimes abroad have also uh, assumed kind of the mantle of divine blessedness as they see it. Uh, Allah has blessed them with this resource. Is it any wonder then that they are going to uh, define themselves very much in relation to that material resource and, and uh, imagine their futures uh, with the God factor very much factoring in? What, uh, this is going to be, I only probably got like two more questions left, but one of my questions is, did you ever look into the rise of Silicon Valley and kind of what that did to kind of the societal structure a little bit? Uh, I, I, I haven't. Others, others to some degree have. Um, and, and certainly there's been some, some good books written lately. Uh, but that, that's another, you know, you talked about the gold rush. I, I think Silicon Valley is, is kind of another comparable uh, sector uh, to oil, uh, just for its um, the scale and range of possibility in the Silicon Valley for one individual to hit it big and and hit it big on a global scale uh, is is in some ways unimaginable unless you relate it to what oil was a hundred years ago for a lot of a lot of individuals. So uh, there is this this kind of uh, uh, the magic of, of, of capitalist endeavor uh, is, is embodied in Silicon Valley. It, today, in a way, it was uh, the oil industry for the last 150 years. So there, there's a lot of parallels, in other words. And I, and I think we can also talk about the kind of the religious cultural dimensions of this as, as being uh, similar and comparable as well. But my own uh, work is not necessarily you know, uh, gotcha. well, we're mentioning yeah. something that you did mention about um, drifting more into the energy kind of category, in a sense, did you notice how some of those you mentioned in the very beginning about dealing with like political historians or people of that more political aspect of thing? Did you mention did you notice how like, I guess, not I wouldn't say divided, but just how strong their views are doesn't matter what side they're on whether it's left or right but like i mean speaking from like when i look at something i look at like trying to get the historical accuracy of that event and i started to notice when talking about hoover there were people that followed on a beneficial side of hoover or opposite side of how he was and it was just like you start to realize that it's those people's political leanings where they could maybe divide the information and start finding something that they appeal to more and leave out the kind of excess information or things they would deem as excess that the other side might cling on to and i've noticed that with the energy thing it's like depending on if it's water depending on its wind if it's whatever they'll be more than happy to speak the pros on those sides and then talk the negatives on another but not mention the negatives of their own and it's like well okay well how do we get down to the conversation aspect and that's like the grouping aspect in social media i'm just curious on your opinion with that i mean from a, i guess a historian's perspective you got to look at how people can divide things politically pretty fast yeah. <laughs> well, right. I mean, and, and two things there, uh, not to pull out the Canadian card again. Uh, I am an American. I am an American citizen uh, now. So uh, and have been living in the U.S. for 20, 25 years. And, and so, of course, very committed to the project of, of American uh, nation building. Uh, but, you know, looking back to my Canadian roots, I think that was partly my initial fascination with the U.S. is that 
just how ideological everything is. The nation itself is built on ideology. It, it has, from the very get-go, created as a result a great division along uh, these lines of, you know, ideas matter, uh, what we stand for matter. Uh, but it's also been a very polarized society as a result. And, and of course, with social media and so forth, I think we're seeing that more and more today. Uh, whereas, you know, in Canada, this was a, uh, this was a, a country cobbled together uh, for uh, a sense of order, right? This was a very practical thing. Let's, let's yeah, sure, let's come together. Uh, and so it's never been as animated in its, its politics. Uh, uh, there is a sense with the United States that this is a grand experiment that is always being tested, right? And, and so that, that's one perspective coming at it uh, you know, from this outsider, uh, which, which I find uh, this is why I, I continue to be fascinated with writing about American history. And then secondly, again, the point I've, I've kind of underscored throughout is, is writing as a historian. And I think we do see so much uh, kind of, I don't wanna say noise, uh, there's just so much intensity to both sides of anything in American life and certainly related to energy and environment uh, that I think it's the historian's role to, to say, let's step back, let's see how we got to this point uh, and let's just see and appreciate the complexities of the commitments through time uh, that we've had as a citizenry to perhaps this one resource or to uh, to the environment, uh, you know, without giving up necessarily our beliefs and, and our priorities, our values, at least let's come together to 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 appreciate the the gray areas, the ways in which uh, there are no easy answers all the time. Uh, and I think that's the job of the historian, more so than the journalist or the pundit or those who are, are activists and advocates for their particular point of view. And uh, so I, I continue to, to, to write in that framework, hoping that people from both sides uh, can can appreciate their own histories and you. And I, I will say, you know, one of the great satisfactions of, of writing this book uh, and talking about it for the last few years is I'm a product of an oil patch. I grew up in Alberta, the Texas of Canada. Uh, I've spoken across Alberta, I've spoken in Texas and so forth. And, and, you know, people who are in the oil industry have come to appreciate what I've had to say. I think it's added to their own uh, sense of, of the history that they're part of. Uh, and it's also nudged others kind of on the kind of environmentalist side who, who are very anti-oil to appreciate just how much this industry has meant uh, to average Americans through time and, and just why it is then that it might be so uh, so challenging going forward for us to to carve out a, a new path. So as a historian, again, that's that's where I, I seek to place myself in the conversation, and uh, we'll, I'll, I'll let others uh, bring the heat to the conversation. <laughs> well, Darren, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my uh, show. Is there a place where people can find any of your links if you have a Twitter or a website and also anywhere people can find your books as well, too? Well, hey, I, you know, for better and for worse, I, I'm not active on social media, but please feel free to uh, look up my books on Amazon. Uh, the most recent, of course, being Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Uh, that was published by Basic Books. Uh, and, and my website, uh, based at University of Notre Dame in the history department, feel free to access that and feel free to reach out with an email. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.